Welcome to This Grit and Grace Life. You've got questions, we've got answers. From the boardroom to the bedroom, car lines to college, single, married, or single again, we're bringing real answers to help you live and love your grit and grace life. Welcome to This Grit and Grace Life. I'm Darlene Brock. What's up, babes? Julie Bender in the house. Julie Bender in her captain's chair. She's adjusting the arms. <laughs> She's wiggling in it. She's like the power woman. <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, I feel like I'm just kind of waddling through life right now. Yeah, you kind of are. Quite literally. <laughs> you <Sorry>. are. <laughs> and while we're recording this, you are now eight months pregnant or very near that. The months are confusing to me. They are. I just, you know, because I make you count weeks. Oh. But then everyone asks you, how many months are you? You're like, I don't know. It's weeks. So, you know, <laughs> it's been a while since you've had a baby. So, I don't know. I'm very close-ish. Well, and fortunately, you're only going to have one, whereas our guest today had twins, I which I can't imagine. even imagine. I mean, I've had multiple people ask me if I'm having twins, and I've wanted to punch them in the throat, if yeah, I'm being honest. I, that's one of those, you know. It's like, you're not supposed to ask that. No, you're not. And you're one not of them was my to... husband. Oh, gee whiz. <laughs> Great. Okay, so, oh, you know, fine. we're going to at least talk about twins today a little bit before we get into our discussion about some more serious things. Okay, identical twins have different fingerprints. This feels like semi-obvious. <laughs> yeah, it does. But if they're identical, wouldn't they be so identical? is this like technically the only thing that's different about them? No, I think there's probably a few others, but I have seen twins I cannot tell apart. Oh, for sure. Lincoln yeah. has friends that are twins, and I'm like, how does he know who's who? I, I, never, I never know. <laughs> He'll like call one by name, and I'm like anxious to see if she turns. So like, <laughs> did he get it right? <laughs> that's pretty funny. Did you know that twins start interacting in the womb at 14 weeks? Interesting. I mean, are they poking each other already or what? Well, I mean, what? think about it. At 28 weeks, you're huge already, if you're me. And so, I don't know, isn't it kind of like two 14 weeks old is kind of like 28? It's not really how it works. <laughs> yeah, it's not really like good that. at math either. <laughs> That's so cute. Well, once you have one set of non-identical twins, you are three to four times more likely to have another set. Oh, well, I would scary. Yeah, that's depressing, isn't it? I would not want to know that fact if that's I had so non-identical twins. Just nobody tell me because it's not going to change anything anyway, and I would worry about it all the time. I guess. Um, identical twins have DNA that is 99.9% the same. They also have almost nearly identical brainwave patterns, but again, different fingerprints and teeth marks. Hmm, interesting. So when they bite each other, you know which child oh, bit so whom. Funny. Well, I mean, I listen to a lot of crime podcasts, and so it's like, it's your fingerprints and your teeth is how they identify you, so this is actually really making a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it's amazing, though, that they are so identical other than that. Okay. Twins who grow up apart are still likely to have similar personalities, interests, and attitudes. Interesting. Well, and haven't you also seen and read things about twins who... They, they know what each other's thinking, even though they have not grown up alike, or they are so similar in not just their attitudes, but kind of their connection. Mm -hmm. They kind of have a connection that is beyond normal. Yeah, that's what, that's what we hear. I would be curious. Do you know any twins that you could ask about that? I don't. I so like let's I just should. make it up and say, I think that's really true. I would true. love to know that. I don't if know. you are a twin, we'd like to know this. Well, maybe <laughs> we'll ask our guest today if she's experienced that with her twins. 
So the connection between twins and the science behind them is obviously very intriguing. But you know what's maybe even more amazing? Being a mom of twins. I think it's more than amazing. I think it's like accomplishment par excellence where can you even imagine running after two, especially two two-year-olds? No. I can't either. <laughs> uh-uh. Uh-uh. Today's guest is a twin mom. And beyond that, she is an author. And here's what we're going to talk about today. She is a recovery advocate. Caroline Beidler, MSW, is an author and founder of the storytelling platform Bright Story Shine, where she has released several ebooks, including 10 Practical Ways to Make Your Recovery Shine. With almost 20 years in leadership within social work and ministry, she leads Creative Consultation Services, LLC, a business focused on creating sustainable addiction recovery support services. She's also a research collaborator with the Lida Hill Institute on Human Resilience at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and a team writer for Grit and Grace Life. She's also a blogger at the global recovery platform In the Rooms. Caroline lives in Tennessee with her husband and twins, where she enjoys hiking on the mountains and building up her community's local recovery ministry. Welcome, Caroline. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. Um, I'm going to resist the urge to let this whole episode be about babies because we certainly have some incredibly important things to talk about. But because I am about to bring one solo baby into this world, I am curious, can you tell us something, maybe a funny story or a challenging time about raising your twins and how old are they now? Oh my goodness. Well, there are so many stories I have. It's really hard to pick just one. Mm -hmm. And I've really loved writing about my experience as a mother and a twin mom for the Grit and Grace Project. It's been a really neat opportunity to do that. Uh, You know, and I'm not sure if anyone else can relate, but my foggy mom brain is Mm -hmm. like really mushy. Today is one of those days. Mm -hmm. And motherhood for me has been this experience of, you know, it's been something that blurs together. And it just feels like this big blur. My twins are going to be four in a couple of months. But there are these shiny moments that stand out. And one of the things that I just so enjoy doing with my twins lately has been playing outside. And we have what we call in our house mud days. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a mom, I'm usually trying to keep my kids clean, (laughs) organized, alive, you know, dressed, (laughs) behaving. And I feel like you know, I need like a commander, you know, whistle or something like I'm commander mom, like with two little ones, I'm always giving orders. It feels like, but on Mondays, Oh, I love it. I just, you know, tell my kids, especially if after it rains, I say, let's go outside and you can get as muddy Mm -hmm. and messy as you like. And every time it's the same, they kind of look at me for a minute. Are you serious, mom? And then the smiles just spread across both of their faces. And if you follow me on social media, you've seen, I, I like a couple of friends joke with me, you pick, post pictures of your kids muddy a lot. And it is true. <laughs> I do because I have some ridiculous pictures. I mean, mud in the hair, they throw it at each other. So what I do after our Mondays seriously is strip them down naked in our driveway. We live in town. Okay. And hose them down (laughs) in the bathtub. It is so much fun. So I just, those are, that's one of the moments that I'm just really trying to hold on to and treasure right now when they're little. 
Oh, I absolutely love that because I think you need to let your kids get muddy and messy and, you know, go out and kill bugs and do whatever they want to do because it's part of the growing up experience. And really, if you just let them do it all day and then hose them down once, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Right. Well, we're going to venture in now to a little more challenging things. I don't know, hosing them down may be challenging, but Mm -hmm. not like this. Um, Because you have written for Grit and Grace some things about some traumatic moments in your growing up life and things that I would imagine had a significant impact on some of the struggles you had later. So can you take us back there and tell us a little bit about it? Sure, absolutely. Well... You know, in my life, I've been muddy too. Hmm. And there has been a lot of dirt and a lot of mess. And now as a woman in addiction and trauma recovery, my life looks so different than what it did back when I was a teenager and in my 20s. One of the articles that I wrote for Grit and Grace that was so hard to write, but it was so healing is titled, What I Would Say to the Man Who Raped Me. First time I was sexually assaulted, I was a freshman in high school. And this point in my life truly started this spiral into darkness for me. There were a lot of other contributing factors to kind of a struggling, challenging upbringing, tough childhood. Oh, my parents loved me dearly. But this moment, this one particular moment as a 14 year old was something that really changed things for me. Mm. I would say at this point in my life, you know, as I was developing a sense of self and autonomy and figuring out who I was as a young woman, as a growing young woman, my sense of self became very distorted Mm. and things like boundaries vanished. I would say at that point too, you know, my sense of worth was suddenly gone. My body wasn't something that I cherished or protected or treated with loving care. You may have heard the expression, you know, our body is a temple. Well, mine was more like a garbage dump and everything that I started, you know, putting into my body, allowing into my body, continued to just uh, perpetuate the cycle of hurt and hardship. And I know this is, this is some heavy stuff. So I want to acknowledge that. And I think especially for women, so many of us have experienced this type of specifically this type of trauma. I don't know if you've heard the statistics, but one in three women globally have experienced some type of sexual violence. And it is a heartbreaking statistic. And it is not just a statistic. You know, that number has reached into my own life. And I know the lives of so many of possibly women listening to this podcast today. So I want to acknowledge that this, these can be difficult conversations, Mm -hmm. but I would love to talk a little bit more and answer any questions you have about that specific experience and how it's impacted my life. For sure. Well, I mean, I think my first question, especially as a mom is when that happened, is that something that you openly shared with your parents or you know, you're talking about how it affected your self-esteem and I can only imagine that absolutely it would have completely changed your view of self. Is that something that you processed with somebody at the time or did that come later in life? That's a great question. Unfortunately, no, Mm -hmm. I did not process it at the time. And it really took me 
a couple decades until I was able to dive into what healing from that type of violation, what healing can look like. And that wasn't the only time that I would experience being raped and experiencing mm -hmm. sexual violence. Mm -hmm. So I did not open up and it was a, a secret, a, a shameful secret that I carried with me for a long time. So not surprisingly, as a 14 year old, you know, my inability to think I could talk about it or share openly about it, I internalized that and then started looking for other things to help me feel better, help right. ease some of the pain I was experiencing, drugs, alcohol. I quickly developed a substance use disorder, very unhealthy relationships with men, all of this muddy, messy, yuck as a way to try to process and cope the best that I knew how at the time. Right. So that's one of the reasons now in my work, in my writing, I feel so passionate about getting it all out there. You know, that article I wrote about being raped as a 14 year old was so hard to write. And I remember talking with Ashley, one of the staff writers and editors and talking through some pieces of that story and what I wanted to convey to the readers. And it was so challenging, but I felt this calling and this movement to share about those darker parts of my story because I knew what it felt like to finally find freedom. And I want other women to know that it's okay to talk about the rape, you know, the divorce, the miscarriage, all of these things that I feel like as women, we just feel like we need to somehow shoulder and carry by ourselves when really we don't have to. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question again, no, I did not reach out, but I think it is so, so important for women to know today that you don't have to live in that secretive place that you can reach out, especially to other women for support. Mm, let me ask you this, Caroline. If you're a mom and your teenage daughter is acting in a way that you're wondering what's going on. Are there, you know, I'm thinking from the mother perspective who has a teenage daughter right now, and, and she's wondering, has my child been affected? Because so many are. How do I find out? What do I look for? What do you wish your mom had seen? And I'm not saying she should have, or there's no condemnation here, but what do you wish had triggered a reaction from someone else that may have intervened with you at the time? Mm -hmm. I would say that when things happen to us, we are going to communicate something about whatever that thing is, either in a healthy way or a not so healthy way. So at 14, I wasn't able to go to my parents or go to a counselor, go to a teacher and say, hey, at that party, I was raped. How I did communicate that was I started drinking really heavily. I started lying. I started hanging out with the older boy crowd. I started coming home smelling like cigarettes and cannabis. You know, I started doing all these things that were really different than how I had started out middle school and high school. It was almost this kind of 180 degree turn started to go a different direction. So I would say one of the key ways that anyone can be aware that maybe something has happened, whether that's sexual violence or bullying or any, or a mental health crisis, um, any number of things that young people struggle with today is watch for the way that that person is communicating, even if it's not verbally. So I would 
encourage parents, especially moms, to be on the lookout for any sort of indications that behavior is changing. And we know from you know research, I do a lot of work with women in co-occurring trauma, mental health, and addiction recovery. Those things go hand in hand. So a lot of times the substance use, alcohol, drugs, food, you know, different things like that, using something to cope with those feelings, that's a really uh, pretty key indicator that something might be going on. So if your teen is struggling with substance use, I would highly encourage you to be open to listening and saying, hey, I'm here to support you. Is there something you wanna tell me? Is there something going on? You know, you're not in trouble here. I just wanna support you. Or if maybe you're getting the sense that you're not exactly the, I don't wanna say safe person for your teen, but maybe they would open up to a counselor or someone else, encourage that type of relationship, have them seek uh, therapy because the earlier that you can address this, the better. You know, I lived, thankfully I survived through it, but decades of substance use and repeated sexual violence, which often go hand in hand, especially for women because I was not able to cope with what happened in a healthy way early on. So I strongly encourage anyone listening, please make sure this is one of the top things for parents to be aware of because it is so prevalent and it happens so often to women. You've mentioned that, you know, your, uh, your abuse led you to substance abuse. I'm curious when, how much later and, and, you know, what were the circumstances that led you to recognize that you were really, you know, in a, in a bad place because of what had happened to you and that you needed to, you know, find ways to heal and recover and break the cycle of addiction. I hear this in recovery meetings a lot that, you know, the first time I took a drink, I knew I was an alcoholic or, you know, after the first couple times, you know, I started blacking out right away, which is, you know, one of uh, people in recovery say blacking out is when you forget what happened, but that happened right away. And you know what, that was my experience too. It was as if the first time I took a drink or drug or whatever I was putting in my body that would change the way I felt instantly. It was like, I wanted more. Mm -hmm. I always felt this sense of even as a kid, you know, searching for something and feeling like, you know, things with the world wasn't quite right. And after this traumatic thing happened, even more, I wanted to get outside myself. And so really early on after this happened around 14, as soon as I started drinking heavily, I knew I had a problem, you know, obsessing about those thoughts. I remember maybe a little bit later, but, you know, driving past a gas station or liquor store and all oh, those obsessive thoughts would start kicking in. You know, as soon as I woke up planning out, when could I have that next drink? When could I have that next drug? And for me, the gateway of alcohol, wine coolers, you know, Boone's Farm. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. they still have that. But um, that old country song, Strawberry Wine. Um, mm -hmm. Anyways, that was me um, at like 14. But that went quickly past uh, strawberry wine and, and cigarettes to, you know, marijuana and cocaine and, you know, fill in the blank. And at 17, you know, I went through this really quick addiction cycle and was using pretty heavy drugs by 17. I almost, well, I didn't almost, I almost died. And then I overdosed, um, overdosed and almost died. And I was so near death. And that point was really a wake up call for me. My parents, thankfully, encouraged me to go to inpatient addiction treatment, which I did. 
And one of the first exercises we had to do in addiction treatment was write our own obituary. Hmm. Now you can imagine for a 17 year old, <laughs> uh, this was quite eye opening. And I felt this really new sense of urgency. And it was at this point in time, I remember sitting there at the table. I remember what that piece of notebook paper looked like. And I even, I still have a copy of that. But I remember starting to hear a voice that was whispering to me that there was another way. That maybe, just maybe, I was supposed to choose life and not death. And that was the beginning of my long journey beautiful journey into recovery. So you said that inpatient treatment was at 17. Um, I, I know from people in my own life who've struggled with different levels of addiction that often there's a relapse when dealing with, you know, these types of scenarios. Were you able to, as I say, get clean from that, that inpatient treatment or was there a relapse or a rebound situation that you struggled with? Well, so many, as, as I'm sure you know, if you have experience with people who uh, struggle with addiction in your family. And let me just say, you know, in America, I guess the current stats are one in three American families hmm. are affected by substance use and addiction. Hmm. So for me, it has been a journey and part of a recovery journey, oftentimes it doesn't have to, but oftentimes it involves setbacks mm -hmm. or relapses, recurrence of use. And I had a, um, one of the women that has mentored me over the years. She does a lot of work in recovery advocacy. She likes to describe addiction as similar, a similar medical condition to diabetes or heart disease, that it really has this physical component to it. You know, it's not that we're just, we're bad people and we struggle with addiction, but there is this genetic kind of physical component to, to addiction and to substance use disorders. And she's like, you know, if someone struggles with diabetes and um, they're on this great diet and things are going well, and you know, they've had to, been able to decrease their medicine and they've had awesome recovery through this. And all of a sudden one weekend, you know, oh, just blows it, goes out for ice cream, has a bunch of cookies. But it doesn't mean that you're, you know, you're not still on the path. You're not still trying to take care of yourself. And so I love that analogy because I think a lot of times people who struggle with addiction, there's so much shame already in that struggle, that human struggle of addiction, but to feel bad about, you know, going back out. I mean, the most important thing is when you, you get back up, right? We all fall down and we all take a couple steps back from time to time. So the, the most important thing is waking up, standing up, getting ready to fight another day. And I recently, a couple months ago, celebrated 11 years in recovery. And I'm so grateful for that. And um, one of my main hopes and prayers is that my kids never have to see me in that place. Um, and I, I believe that that can happen one day at a time, but yeah, setbacks unfortunately can be a part of the process, but it doesn't mean that someone's recovery journey or story is over. It can mean just the beginning. So let's speak to the person who is walking alongside that one who is in recovery, who may just want to throw up their arms when that setback happens or, you know, think I've had it, I'm tired, I want them to get better, but I don't know if I can continue this. What do you say to them as far as how much grace do they give? How much support do they give? What would you need from someone who was your partner in that situation? 
I love the question, the way you phrased that, what grace would you give? And my first response to that is, what grace do we get? You know, what grace do we get in our life? And what grace would we would we want for our own lives? And I feel like that is a really good way to measure how much grace we should be extending to others. I know it's a really hard thing. And I've been there too. If there's a family member that's, you know, not getting well and really struggling to keep putting yourself out there. I'm not saying, you know, don't have boundaries with your family member and, and, you know, don't promote safety in your own, in your own household and things like that. But I think the number one thing that we can do for anyone struggling with addiction, with, with any issue really is just show up. And by showing up, that can be something as simple as listening, you know, sitting down, showing up for other women. I was baptized in my twenties and, um, I want to say church hopped, like I used to bar hop. I mean, it was like, I was like trying a new church every Sunday, you know, <laughs> just kind of breezing in and breezing out. I don't know how many services, you know, here comes this, I don't know. I probably had my hoodie up and, you know, threw out my cigarette butt on my way in and sat down in the back and, you know, listen. And I was just hungry. I was hungry for answers. I was hungry for connection. You know, early on, I was seeking this escape from pain feeling like, you know, there's something not quite right about this world. And I was onto something back then. I was just looking for it in the wrong way. But I wonder what would have happened if someone would have stopped me, if another woman would have stopped me before I raced out of that church to stop me and have a conversation and just show up for me at that time. So I think we can show up for people in our churches. We can show up for people in our in our homes and in our families, in our communities. That would be the number one thing that I would suggest is show up. And listening, listening is so, so helpful. I mean, I had, I don't know how many people telling me back in my uh, days when I was really struggling with substances about all the things I could be doing and I needed to do and just, you know, put it down and go back to school and do this and that and the other thing. But I don't remember anyone ever really just sitting across from me and listening. And that's another reason why I'm so passionate about listening and showing up for other women today. And I wanted to share just briefly, I have a platform, a blog called Bright Story Shine, and it's really a place for not just recovery resources for women, but there it's a place to share stories similar to mine, stories of recovery and resilience. And I wanted to create, I want to create every day a place where women feel like they can share their stories and be heard. And I think that's so important for all of us, especially those of us who've experienced something like sexual violence and addiction. I'm curious, you obviously mentioned your blog. What are some other specific resources or maybe first steps that you would recommend someone take if they're recognizing addiction is present in their own life or in the life of somebody that they love? What do you think would be their first step? Well, there are so many resources today, which is a beautiful thing. Back, I'm not gonna date myself, well, maybe like 30 <laughs> years ago when uh, this journey started for me. I, you know, there weren't things like collegiate recovery communities where college kids in recovery can connect. There weren't things like recovery high schools where students in recovery could connect. There weren't nearly as many recovery residences or recovery homes. There weren't 
recovery community organizations. There are all these amazing resources that have been built up to support women like me and those of us who are on an addiction and mental health and trauma recovery journey. So I would suggest, and, and I get this question a lot, and a lot of times people reach out to me on social media, Facebook and Instagram, which by the way, please reach out anytime. But one of the first things I say is go online and Google recovery community organization, because almost every state in our in the US, and there are many globally as well, have what's called a recovery community organization. And the jobs of these amazing, beautiful grassroots group groups of people in recovery, oftentimes, their job is to help folks like us find the resources we need. So they are the best equipped to say, okay, here's where the recovery houses are, the recovery coaches, here's where you can find peer support, here's the meeting. So I would suggest Googling recovery community organization in your state and reach out to those folks and say, hey, I'm looking for help, where can I go? Because I think a lot of times people's first inclination is, oh, I'm gonna Google you know, addiction treatment Where's the, the nearest treatment center, which is all well and good. And by all means do that too. But another way to connect specifically with peer support, which is just folks in recovery, working with other folks in recovery, which has been proven to be very successful in helping us maintain recovery. It's helped for me. Those places can be found. Those folks can be found in recovery community organizations. So that would be my number one recommendation. If someone is struggling or has a family member who is struggling today. You know, this is kind of a challenging subject for a lot of people, I would think. And, you know, walking through your life and your experience, where it started and how it just spun as it did. But you also said you have been sober for 11 years. I want to end this podcast hopeful. I want to end this podcast encouraging that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how it looks, and as if you know, maybe this will never end. Maybe I'll never get out of it. That's not true. That's not true in your life. And I know that's not true in a lot of other women's life. So, you know, Caroline, I'd like you to tell us why we need to be hopeful. And if it's true, if it's real, can you? Hope, one of my favorite words, Darlene, I just love it. Because my own life is this beautiful picture. I really feel like a beautiful picture of what it can mean to hold on through the struggle and what can be yours on the other side of that. You know, we started off this podcast today talking about my beautiful twins. Oh, I'm gonna get emotional, Henrik and Violet. I was blessed with marriage and children and I went back to school. You know, I have a book coming out uh, shortly. I have all of these beautiful blessings and even if I didn't have all of those things, the blessing of being healed and freed from the pain of what I'd experienced, oh, it's all been worth it. And it's all been incredible. And my story is not unique. I am not some, you know, person like, wow, she's incredible. Look at her, blah, blah, blah. No, there are millions, probably billions, <laughs> so many people out there whose lives have been transformed into something new and into something amazing. So I would encourage if someone is out there struggling, feeling like it's not possible or it's too dark or this thing that I experienced was too hard. I wanna just give you a little bit of hope today in that, you know what, if my life could turn out the way that it has, if I 
have been able to miraculously put the drugs and alcohol and all of the unhealthy stuff down and to walk in freedom today, it is possible for you. And I want to say too that, you know, one of the things I love about recovery is this, it's something we do together. And it models this vulnerability that is just so beautiful and honest and true. And when we open up and share our dark places and our secrets, something absolutely miraculous happens. So I want to encourage you, if you're feeling, again, hopeless, you don't know what to do, maybe the first step is finding that person that you trust, that feels safe, and start letting them into your story. Because your story is beautiful, and I just, I know, whichever listener this is speaking to right now, that your story is truly meant to shine, and you are meant to live in a new, uh, beautiful, and healed way. Caroline, I think you should just drop the mic right there <laughs> because that's such a powerful and, as you said, hopeful way to close out this conversation. I want to thank you for your bravery and being willing to talk about this, um, your humility in that, and also just, like we said, offering hope to our listeners that as dark as it might seem, there is absolutely um, reason to trust and believe that hope and healing can be found. So we're so happy that you've experienced that and we're thankful for the resources um, that you continue to put out to help other women find that well and caroline i know you've written some amazing articles for grit and grace life um, they are truly wonderful and we'll link those in the show notes but i would also like for our listeners to know where to find you and to get information on your upcoming book and all of the things going on in your life so can you tell us Absolutely. So you can find me at carolinebeidler.com and brightstoryshine.com is the resource hub that I've created for women. And yes, of course, Grit and Grace, I've got some articles up. I've got some more coming. I'm really excited about and news about my book will be coming very soon. I can't wait to announce the title and the cover and all of those things. Mm -hmm. And you all have been so supportive. So I'm excited for that journey as well. So thank you so much. You know, Julie, I loved Caroline's story, as difficult as it was, and how hard it is to go back to the challenging times in your life. But, you know, because we can find hope, I wanted to share this verse from 1 Peter 5.10. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you and he will place you on a firm foundation and we have confidence in that that no matter what we've struggled with that is exactly where we can land I love that Caroline answered your question about you know how much grace do we give and she said as much grace as we've been given and I think that was a really beautiful idea and reminder for each of us that you know none of us are exempt from the struggles that we face maybe putting us in a position where this could be part of our reality. But at the same time, none of us are far from the hope that she has experienced. So we hope that you've been encouraged by this episode. We again want to remind you to go to the show notes to get those resources for yourself or someone you may love. And thanks for tuning in to this episode of Grit and Grace Life. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of This Grit and Grace Life. Make sure you've subscribed and rated and reviewed the show so more friends can find us. You can also share about this episode on your social media or send it to a friend you think it could help. 
You can find everything we talked about in this episode on our website, gritandgracelife.com, where you'll also find plenty of other articles from other women answering questions you may have.